Good morning. You may be seated. Well, thank you to everybody who has uh, continued to pray for me and pray for our family. The Lord's been been good, uh, of course, and and uh, sustained us through um, a lot of different things. The uh, the treatment that I was on, I did get news last week that uh, they felt I had hit a plateau. So we were gonna we we're gonna be going in a different direction on on treatment. Um, Lots of fun things happen. You know, the new um, iPads are face, facial recognition. They don't use a thumbprint anymore. And I, I was uh, actually having some withdrawals from some of the meds, and it didn't recognize me. And all I could think is it looked at me and said, ha, ah, what is that? Danger. Close down. Don't, sh- don't open up. Finally got it to open up. But, uh, you know, again, the Lord is good, and... I, I just can't tell you how, what a blessing it is to um, go through a challenge like this and be continually reminded by the Lord that, that there is nothing that will separate us from his love. Amen. Amen. So uh, this morning, I, I, um, I'm, I'm, it's just always a privilege to be here. I, I think for you folks, it's, it's probably always interesting when you get the the part-time new preacher and the potpourri that might come in. John is very gracious to let me do that. Um, I I actually started this text, looking at this text months ago um, when John first started talking about his uh, summertime schedule for uh, schooling down in Southern California. Well, let me jump into this. So Jude's letter opens and closes with very comforting words to believers. And um, the, the, uh, the beginning phrase, contend for the faith, the closing doxology, uh, I think are well known in the church. Uh, it's the in-between parts that uh, challenge us in some expected and some unexpected ways. And uh, um, when I really first started looking at this again months ago, it was, it was this contend for the faith that really captured me. It's one of those proactive uh, action verses with plenty of preaching potential, it seemed. And as I studied it and got further drawn into it, um, I couldn't escape the really the totality of the message. As much as I tried pulling out a verse here or a verse there or, or, or a theme here or there, um, it kept drawing me into the entirety of the text. So um, that is how we're going to be um, approaching it. We'll do this in two messages. Um, John's being really gracious with his pulpit. And uh, so I plead with you to, to um, either be here next week, although I know it's a holiday, so uh, otherwise uh, see if you can get it online because I fear today's will be, uh, I'd say, woefully incomplete on its own, and next week's will have much less gravity apart from the work that we'll do today. And I'll be honest, at times, uh, the entirety of this text left me with a bit of trepidation, almost enough to steer me in a different direction, but uh, somehow I couldn't get away from the text, and I don't believe the Lord uh, allowed me to get away from the text. It reminded me a little bit of uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you remember, it's, it's uh, one of those pivotal moments in the beginning when Susan and Lucy uh, begin a realization of Aslan. Am I the only crazy person that read C.S. Lewis kids' books? Okay. 
Mr. Beaver, you ever hear someone start that way? Mr. Beaver begins this way. You'll understand when you see him. But shall I see him? asked Susan. My daughter of Eve, that's why I brought you here. And to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And so it is with the word of God. It isn't always safe, but it is good. Amen? And Jude is, is here with us with a critically important message for the church, and it's as relevant and important today as it was 2,000 years ago. So with that, let's jump in. He begins with a greeting, of course, but it's a unique greeting. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So the author of Jude, of course, uh, Jude, but he introduces himself as the brother of James, and along with James, Jude, uh, and he are half-brothers by way of Mary, uh, half-brothers to their Lord Jesus. And yet, he never points to this or calls upon this for authority, but instead refers to himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. And who is he writing to? He is writing to the church, the entirety of the church. And he defines them in three ways. They are called, they are beloved, and they are kept. And as we enter this text, as believers, as those held securely in the love of God, hold on to those terms. We are called, we are loved, we are kept. Judah is very eager to begin stressing the security of the believer in God's electing and preserving love. And then he goes on from defining the recipients of his letter to a blessing upon the church, but it's much more than a blessing. It really is um, a outcome of who we are. He says mercy, peace, love. And I think you can say that because we are called, loved, and kept, we freely experience mercy, peace, and love. Do we not? Apart from being the called, apart from being loved by God, apart from 
being kept in a state of grace by the work of Christ, we cannot experience, we will not experience, we will not live in a state of mercy, peace, or love as hard as we try. But we're not only recipients as redeemed, we are to be merciful, peaceful, loving to all those around us within our congregation and without our congregation. Well, Jude jumps right into his letter and and in a way he jumps right into a little bit of uh, being conflicted. He begins with uh, one purpose, really, in writing the letter, but quickly tells us he had to switch gears, and he's ending with a second purpose. Verse 3 tells us, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the, to the saints. So he began very eagerly. In other words, uh, it wasn't going to be a throwaway letter. He had, he had uh, strong intentions for this original letter uh, to change direction. There was a very um, important reason to do it. And I don't want to gloss over that as if to say that uh, when he said he was, he, he was eager, but now he's changing gears, that um, it's just a matter of, of uh, writing convention that he is saying that. But he really is telling us that um, he had a great desire and was very eager to write, uh, you might say, at least in the beginning we're going to discover, a very positive letter, a very encouraging letter. Perhaps he had been to the church recently and he wanted to share in the joy of um, their salvation, their growth in the Lord. And now he tells us he found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's a very important purpose to a letter, is it not? I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You got to ask, why, why was it necessary to write? We believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe God will, will protect his church. Why was it necessary that he, he writes to the church? Well, part of the story is that in God's grace, he intends us to be part of his purposes. The church. He works from within the church. And that is why that uh, uh, Jude is speaking to the church and he's using words like, I write appealing to you. He says, I appealing to you. Why is it necessary to appeal to us? Is there apathy? Is there ignorance? Is the church unaware of an of a impending struggle or an existing struggle? It's hard to say. But his call is to contend. Contend means to struggle for, to, to earnestly contend for. And I think sometimes we do get into an attitude within the church 
that things will take care of themselves. That, that uh, uh, perhaps someone else is in that role. Or um, my sphere seems to be working just fine. But this is a call to the entire church to contend. And then he defines what it is to contend. He says, for the faith. And this is important. When he says to contend for the faith, he is not saying contend for my faith. He is not saying contend for your faith. He is not saying contend for the faith of Grace Bible Church. It is the faith. It is the common faith among all believers throughout this community, throughout this state, throughout this country, and throughout this world. It is a faith that is greater than our personal preferences, our congregational polity, our denominational proclivities, cultural and ethnic distinctives, and everything secondary to the gospel. What we're called to contend with is that which contends against the faith, against the saving work of the gospel, and seeks to undermine it. 1 Timothy 6.12 says, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Luke 13, 24, strive to enter the narrow door for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Philippians 1, 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving, contending, side by side for the faith of the gospel. For Jude, the faith is not merely a list of propositions. When defined fully, it includes the life-changing activity of God, conformity to its moral imperatives, and complete obedience to our Lord Jesus. Jude means all of this and then some. There is a fullness to this apostolic faith. And lastly, but not finally, we contend together for the faith. I mean, how much sense does it make that once we have bitten and devoured each other over secondary divisive things, do we turn and contend with the source of division and error? It just doesn't make sense. We are told this battle is coming. It's always been coming. It's already here. And we have to meet it together. Well, with whom do we contend? The beginning of verse 4 tells us, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people. Jude will, throughout his letter, he uses this term, uh, and I I think it's easy to suspect that he uses it in a derisive phrase, certain people. And uh, I think what's interesting is it's not important to name them. You will know them by your behavior, by their behavior. His purpose is not to stigmatize individuals. In fact, we'll see Jude giving us tools later in the letter for restoration, repentance, healing. Peter's a little bit more pointed. In in his second letter, chapter 2, verse 11, he says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So certain people 
have crept in unnoticed. It's kind of interesting. How did they creep in unnoticed? And one note that we might make is that this is an inevitability to it when we're not looking. It is a suggestion that these people have enough self-awareness that they need to apply some stealth to go unnoticed, at least for a period of time. They may become quite established before becoming known. Or changes occur over time. If uh, you um, pay attention to some of the blogs or Christian news posts, you won't be any stranger to uh, really a flurry of uh, leading evangelical apostasy over the last few weeks and months. It's really been quite stunning, even from uh, individuals that, um, that, that began their ministries uh, viewed as, as pillars. So the call to be aware and to be involved is for all of us. Then he says, these people are ungodly people. And I think we need to define that a little bit because it's easy in some of these phrases to pick up a us and them sort of thing. And, you know, the first thing that came to mind for me when I saw the term ungodly people is Jesus speaking to the wealthy young man. And what is... What is uh, what is it that he, he told the wealthy young man? There is no one good but God. So when we use the term ungodly people, or conversely, when we use the term godly people, I think most of us refer to that as uh, individuals that we deal with in the church, in our lives, that are demonstrating at the moment, a um, Godward focused direction and path. Would you say that was true? And that an ungodly person is someone of just the opposite. They have a very uh, self-focused, individualistic, perhaps pleasure-focused, attention. Rather than a spiritual focus and a Godward focus. So when identifying ungodly people, um, and again, throughout this text, I, I just, I, I, I cannot look at all of this text and say these individuals are are, are all destined for uh, judgment, and all these individuals are all destined for glory. In fact, not thoroughly today, but much more thoroughly next weekend. Did I tell you I have to come back next week? Um, we're really going to learn that to contend for the faith is not at all about pointing fingers. It is about being part of God's redemptive work. So we have a picture of who we're contending with. Why do we contend? The end of verse 4 says that these are those who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Uh, there is a lot there. 
and diving into it, you can, you can even say this is probably the pivotal phrase of the entire letter. Uh, the the uh, motivation and purpose um, for contending for the faith and much of what is at stake. He says they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Romans 5, 20 through 6, 4 says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, the truth is this verse unmasks our propensity. Who among us, if left alone by the Holy Spirit for a single second, might not risk all heaven holds for a moment of earthly satisfaction. Daily, the temptation is to presume upon grace. Presumption is our greatest sin. This verse belongs to the church. And according to Jude, many are heading ever so unwittingly towards condemnation, never having been saved at all. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteousness or that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then this wonderful statement. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That is a correct presentation and balance of the grace of God versus the sensuality of mankind condemned. But in this text, he says they pervert the grace of God. Now, to, per- to pervert is, 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 I know we use that primarily, we, we probably think in terms of something grotesque or, or, or you know, bizarrely twisted um, at its base. Pervert just means to change. It just means to swap out, right? So... So these people have taken sensuality and swapped it with grace and taken grace and swapped it with sensuality. If you're, if you're going to see it in our world today, and unfortunately if you're going to see it in our church today, and you will to a great extent, uh, I, I've been in churches that... Um, that uh, have a, a, a completely different view than what the Bible teaches on sexual immorality, and they justify it not based on the Word of God, which shouldn't, shouldn't surprise you, but they justify it based on feelings. 
And it can even flow out of a love for individuals, which is, which is truly understandable. But when emotion rules us, truth cannot. When truth rules us, our emotions are controlled and can be used for God's glory. Well, he goes on to say that uh, they not only pervert the grace of God for sensuality, but that they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And even in this, this can be hard to see, um, you know, within a, within a Bible-believing church that people would actually be challenging um, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and his lordship over the church. But it happens. And it comes down to a, a, ba- a very basic principle and characteristic of fallen man. And that is that we desire to cast off authority. I think that is probably the, the, the most uh, common characteristic of every human being on this planet is to cast off authority. We do not like living under the authority of another. Um, and so we even challenge who Jesus Christ is. Denying Jesus, the place of ultimate rule is common fare in the church today. You might hear sayings like, he was a great figure. And to be sure, he was. But they'll say, only among many. Do you see the difference between how we use the word only and the way Jude uses it in our day? Jesus is only one among many. According to what we read in Jude 4, Jesus is our only master. We see the importance of this idea overshadowed previous when Jude acknowledged himself to be Jesus' servant. Christians willingly identify themselves as under the authority, not only of Christ, but of his word. For others, though, coming under any notion of authority is viewed in how else can we deny Christ? The virgin birth is challenged, his divinity, his sinlessness, um, and it goes on and on. Well, as I said, this is, this is a difficult portion of the letter today. Um, it gets a little bit more difficult as we go into chapter or verses 5 and 7, and he, Jude, is speaking of the judgment to come. Verse 5 through 7. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in internal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Jude finds it necessary to remind the church of, of three things. One, that Jesus saved the people out of Egypt and yet later destroyed some. Two, that angels, even, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. And three, Sodom and Gomorrah indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. It's kind of an interesting group. Um, 
and they have much in common, surprisingly. But why remind us? Well, one, he's reminding us because we're never outside the reach of God. And, and when, when, when the Bible tells us to examine ourselves, we need to examine ourselves. Two, these serve as examples both of the grace of God and of the judgment of God. Romans 11.22 says, Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. We assume a lot, and, and uh, I imagine that those who, after everything that they had experienced, knowing the history of their community for 400 years under oppression, that were saved in such a miraculous way out of Egypt, and yet later, some in absolute rebellion and, and uh, rejection of the grace of God end up being judged in the wilderness. I mean, it, it, it is just a, a um, tragedy beyond tragedies. Or angels created to serve in the heavenly kingdom and those that uh, could not stay within the, 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 the prop, as, as Jude puts it, the proper dwelling with which God created them and rebelled. Or Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, I think what's interesting with Sodom and Gomorrah is we probably think of Sodom and Gomorrah as always being Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Always being a horrible, bad place. Uh, what we do know from archaeology is that they were great cities. They were grand, grand cities. And, uh, and one can't help but to draw uh, similarities between how easily we assume America is God's anointed place, and yet... Um, uh, give a little thought to the direction the country is taking. So it says they were judged for indulging in sexual immorality. I assume that at one point that means they did not. When it says they pursued unnatural desire, I assume that at one point the cultural moray was that they did not. Well, we know who we're contending with. We know that God is a God of grace. He is also a God of judgment and justice. And Jude in verse eight um, gives us more of a glimpse of the actions of these people. He says, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Defile the flesh is, is uh, similar to what we've covered before. Uh, those who uh, uh, feel that uh, at this time that, that uh, um, circumcision was necessarily to be combined with faith in Christ for salvation. But these people also reject authority. They blaspheme the glorious ones. I was um, watching an interview the other day with a, uh, again, an evangelical leader of some time back that uh, had um, certainly the, one of the largest church planting ministries in the United States, if not the world. And he, 
he so you know and after everything crumbling almost overnight um, here a number of years out in an interview referred to Calvin and Calvinism or specifically the doctrines of grace as crap and I I thought you know that's that unbelievable arrogance that uh, even if you might have some issues with the nuances of Calvinism, which many people do, and I have no problem with that, but to simply d dismiss it in, I think, as Jude is saying here, in such a blasphemous way and discounting 400 years of ministry and, and um, um, 400 years of, of uh, impact upon... Um, the salvation of millions of people to uh, take take that kind of attack is is an in, it was an interesting illustration I think of the type of person that Jude is talking about. Well, contrasting response to those who we contend in verse nine through ten, Jude says, "But when the archangel Michael contending with the devil." was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So Michael, chief among angels, did not think it appropriate to pronounce a blasphemous judgment against those disputing over the body of Moses, but instead said the Lord rebuke you. And I think that's really important for us to remember um, probably the most destructive thing we can do within the church is to go around pointing fingers and, and categorizing people and being judge and jury. One of the things we're going to get into next week is um, that, that God in his sovereignty, he... He is in control of all of this. And there is little we need to worry about. As we touched on in the beginning, if, if we believe in the sovereignty of God, why do we need to contend? We need to contend because we get to contend. And, uh, and, and, and within that, there is a proper way to do it and to be to be gracious and to be used of God. And we're going to learn a lot about that next week. And I, I'm very much looking forward to that. Um, but even in this, there's a, there's a lesson to be had that even the angel Michael did not pass uh, judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Well, the nature of their rebellion is in verse 11. Very interesting uh, look at three other examples Jude takes us through. He says, woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. And I'll be honest with you, you know, I, I have read Jude many times and in the past before getting into this study. These are the kinds of verses we kind of gloss over, I think, quite quickly. Um, unless we're really studying, you know, well, who was Korah? Who was Balaam? What is all that about? But there are good lessons to be learned. The way of Cain, uh, before Cain became a murderer, God gave him a message. God spoke to him. God instructed him. God preached to him. Cain, Cain was not without. We, we, we understand clearly Adam and Eve's relationship to God. But Cain, prior to that, prior to uh, 
murdering his brother was not without a relationship with God either. God taught him what was and wasn't acceptable. The fact that Cain committed a violent act of murder tells us that in the end, Cain rejected God's word. And like Cain, these people disbelieved. They felt free to change it, and they preached something else. We will do a lot of things based on um, what really comes down to uh, our, our understanding that we know better than God. Well, Balaam's error is found in Numbers, and like Cain, Balaam was a teacher. His downfall, though, came through a love of money and openness to sensuality. In the book of Numbers, we see Balaam, a teacher of God's people, turning against Israel and cursing them, all because a foreign king promised to pay him handsomely for it. At first, Balaam fought off the temptation and refused, but later he reversed his position, advising God's people to engage in orgies and sensuality with the foreign women of Midian. And in essence, he laid aside God's word and taught something else. And he did it so that his own pockets would be lined with cash. Korah's rebellion, he hated the fact that Levites could hold a place of authority over God's people, but he could not. And this is common in the church, that God calls people to different, different uh, uh, positions, perhaps with authority, without authority, different levels of authority. These are... These are, if they're biblical positions, as in elders, deacons, and so forth, these are callings from God. They aren't inventions of men. Numbers 16, one through four says, now Korah and others took men and they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? See, Korah's teaching, he takes God's word at Sinai about the priesthood of all believers, Exodus 19.6, and interprets them in a way that levels any notion of authority like the angels of verse 6, Korah is unhappy living under the authority of another. If, Lord help me, after being removed, and I could only see it as uh, within the sovereignty of God, from a... Uh, uh, position of elder that, that uh, I currently hold. God help me that I would seek to retain it or seek to influence beyond what is appropriate. Um, the uh, John will tell you that, that, that though the desire to be an elder has been with me for years and years and years, it, uh, it, 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 was, it was difficult to move in that direction. Um, and part of that is that up until that point, I felt like my calling was just so clear that uh, when I was brought on staff, um, my job was to support the elders and to submit to their authority. And I think one lesson that I have learned is that, is that um, 
learning to follow well is a wonderful instructor to leading well. I, I hope that second part happens, and, and I believe that I did learn to follow well, but in being removed from a position, um, I pray that I'll learn to follow well uh, in whatever new capacity that that uh, calling is within the church. Well, now he's going to touch on the fruit of these people. And he's going to go through a whole long list of items. We'll move a little bit quicker through this. And I will say that some of these are, are going to be obvious. Some of these might even seem uh, trivial. And that's the interesting thing about uh, the challenges to the church and when we are called to contend, um, you know, in, in other letters, um, Paul has written, and uh, other apostles, the idea of the false teacher, um, and I think most of you agree with, agree with me, is throughout the New Testament. Um, it's not a surprise the gospel has been delivered. Satan has been defeated. Sin and death has been defeated. What does he have left? All Satan has left is to obfuscate and cloud and confuse Christians because the work has been done. And sometimes it's small, it starts with a small nugget and grows, and other times it just stays as a small nugget. You know, the hardest thing to see is the subtle thing, not the big thing. So reading in verses 12 through 13 and 16, Jude says, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees and laid on them, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Well, let me try and tackle some of these quickly. Um, it's a very literary section, uh, very beautifully written, um, wonderful word pictures, hidden reefs at love feasts. Challenging though, isn't it? And all I can do is I can picture a, a, uh, sailing ship moving along a coastline and somewhere in there there's a hidden reef. Can you picture that? Well, picture this. There's a young believer and he is at church in the morning listening to perhaps one of his first messages from the pulpit and the word of God. Um, he's a new believer and he... he, he um, he is invited that night to their love feast in the very early church. The um, Lord's Supper was treated perhaps on a more regular basis, even more like uh, a regular meal joined together. And he sits down next to one of these people. And the one next to him says, what'd you think of the message this morning? And he says, man, I was so encouraged. I learned so much about the love of God. God will never forsake me. What'd you think? And he turns to him and says, better watch out for what they're teaching. Just that subtle little suggestion 
Nothing solid. There's the reef. What is he to think? He stopped in the water. Now he's just worried. Well, he goes on. They feast without fear. We know that uh, as, as, as believers, we are to come before the Lord's table with a sense of awe, with a sense of awareness of, um, of uh, the work of Christ in his shed blood, in his broken body, and to do so unworthily is to um, welcome judgment. But these do so without fear, without fear. They are shepherds feeding themselves. They think they have a lot to share. But who is it really feeding? One example of these is certainly prosperity teachers living in extreme wealth, as an example. Next, he says, waterless clouds swept along by winds. I can only picture a farmer hoping for the nutrients to grow with, the, 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 that that will satisfy the thirst of the ground, and yet they just keep going over. Nothing really ever falls. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, never really bearing. Wandering stars. What do we know about stars? We know about stars that they are fixed points of light, not literally fixed points of light. And of course they are moving, but they certainly are not wandering. When we think about the Milky Way, they all have their place alongside one another. There is, it is perhaps the epitome of the example of order. And the Bible tells us that uh, God, and in his authority, he determines the movement of every single star. And yet these are wandering stars. They're bright they're shiny, but they are wandering stars. And then he says, grumblers, malcontents. And folks, I think you can agree with me. These are two that we all have to be very, very careful about. And part of it, I think, comes from a misunderstanding of of what our individual calling within the church is and what the church is about. I was talking to someone the other day about a study we did um, years ago that I thought was very fruitful in a book called uh, I Am a Church Member. And one of the things that he tries to detail and help the American church with is to, is to break free of this sense of Christian consumerism, that Christianity is, sense, is essentially about serving my needs, as opposed to finding Christianity to be um, a calling by God, to be part of a congregation, and finding my place in serving others, right? And when we have that clear we become much less grumblers. We become much less malcontents. And we become people who really start discovering the joy and the opportunities of serving. And they are all around us. There, there are needs everywhere and there, there are um, uh, opportunities to become involved in people's lives. Um, God calls the church to so much more. And, um, and uh, it, it is a privilege. So then he says, finishing off, following their own sinful desires, they are loudmouth boasters and show favoritism to gain advantage. 
So many of these things are, of course, easy to identify. Um, we, we tend to just probably, uh, some of these more, more um, obvious and base ones, we slide a little bit farther down the uh, aisle from where that person was sitting. But again, the, this is, it, that is not what uh, God calls us to. God calls us to contend for the faith. The small things eat away at the church, the large things eat away at the church, and uh, we are going to grow in our understanding of how to contend for the church even more next week. They say you have to come back next week. Yeah. Well, in verses 14 and 15, Jude touches on promises and prophecies of God's judgment. And, and I'll bring this up here, and we'll touch on it much more next week, but I think the main point is to uh, surprisingly be encouraging. And I say that because, because God will bring all of this to completion. None of it will be uh, none of it will be left to um, uh, the devices of these people. None of it will be left to the uh, work of Satan within the church. And indeed, God promises um, that he is in control. And that is encouraging for all of us. He says in verse 14, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, Christ. So the Lord is coming to execute, execute judgment and to convict all ungodly of all their deeds and ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And again, we need to remember this, that we are not called to execute any judgment. We are not called to blaspheme the ungodly. And we can trust in a righteous God who will do what is right. One last thought about apostasy. Because, uh, I, you know, I think one danger in this study is... Uh, it's very easy to, to start attaching a name to some of it. And I think we really have to, to um, avoid doing that. And we also have to avoid um, the temptation to, um, though we may not be outwardly judging or condemning, um, we oftentimes still inwardly make decisions, long-term decisions about the future of others. But apostasy is a tricky thing. Just five things. We have to remember apostates are self-deceived. It is apostasy because they deny what is true. Apostasy should not surprise us. And third, trajectories matter. And there can be movement towards apostasy and there can be movement away from apostasy. And apostasy is not always permanent. I mentioned a couple uh, Christian evangelical leaders earlier. There's many more that, that uh, you, you could go into detail about and touch on and 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 
and uh, the idea of, of praying for their return to the faith is the, the most appropriate thing to be, to be doing. And lastly, apostasy, believe it or not, accomplishes good in the church. It, it refines, it clarifies truth, and it engages the church in truth. So I appreciate your patience this morning. I, I recognize and understand this is something of a, a, a difficult study this morning. I promise you next week will be more encouraging. I hope it will be. It really is a wonderful letter. And, um, but as I said, it is um, without the work that we do here this morning, uh, the, the, uh, uh, where, where Jude is going to take us in the rest of the letter just won't seem as important or critical and, and it is. So pray with me. And um, we'll ask the Lord for guidance through this week and into the next. Father, thank you for this uh, letter. Um, thank you for uh, your continual prodding to continue uh, pursuing this text. Um, Father, even as uh, I struggled with it, I, I'm certain there are others that are and will struggle with it. Um, I pray for next week and that message that uh, you, would, you would help give me um, clarity and closure and uh, a completeness really to, to Jews' message to the church. Contend for the faith. We want to be faithful with this, Father God. We want to trust you in it and not be fearful. And we want to be those who, in the end, uh, are uh, those who demonstrate your grace and your mercy and your kindness and are peaceable because you have been gracious to us and merciful to us and kind to us, Father God. So bless us as we go. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.